Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, Andy Rintmore. This week we are talking to Chris Bucklow, who is an artist, a visual artist, uh, an author of a book full of dreams that he's been recording for 30 years. We get into a really deep dive chat about dreams, what they mean, and specifically what they mean to the individual. And in this case, it's Chris Bucklow. Uh, it's a wild ride. This is exactly why we started this podcast. I absolutely loved doing this one. So here it is. So, how you doing, Chris? You all right? I'm good, Andy. Thank you. What have you been up to today? Uh, cutting the hedge. Cutting the hedge. <laughs> buying bikes. <laughs> yeah, buying bikes. We yeah. uh, we just previously spoke to uh, Tom McEwen, who um, says to uh, ask you about the Groucho Club and uh, Days of Old. Ah. It's, uh, yeah, it's a good place. Uh, it's not somewhere I hang out very often, but when I'm in London, as they offered me life membership for, right. for free well not for free but for old rope for for, <laughs> for one of my pictures yeah i have got a membership so it's, uh, it's a nice place to go and drink or stay in fact it's a nice place to stay okay what is the groucho club because he talks he's talked about it like it's this sort of center of sort of, sort of in the 90s it was center of sort of party town and hedonism and stuff but like kind of what is it so i brought up groucho Marx, but i don't really know yeah, who that is either it, you know it's a, it's it's a it's just a, a a west end club and uh it i guess it it's for media types really you know so you see tv people in there and yeah i mean and no nobody uh nobody is supposed to recognize anybody so you know oh okay right so it's one yeah. of these sort of after hours if you're cool you come in if you're not you yeah they know yeah, not yeah. to let you in yeah you're not supposed you know you see somebody famous in the corridor and you, you're not supposed to go oh i'm a real fan of your work kind of right them, you know? <laughs> and you're not supposed to tell anyone you saw them uh no probably no. not but like i say, you know we hardly ever go so it's uh yeah, it's not something that I know a great deal about. Okay, so yeah, places like that do intrigue me. The this is the secretive nature of it, and you think, how do I get in? Do you know what I mean, I always, I always feel like there's something is being kept from you, and uh, that's uh, a great appeal. Oh, me. you can come in as a guest. Oh, can you? Oh, okay, yeah. so you don't have to. Next time we're in hoops. London together, Andy. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, Tom said I'll take you to Groucho's, yeah. so maybe we can. <laughs> We can do this together. I'm a freebie, you know, though. I, I tend to stay here. Right. If I possibly can. Okay. Are you so, sort of sick of London? Uh, no, but I decided I wanted to concentrate. Right. And there are too many temptations in London. You know, too many films you might want to go and see. Too many show, uh, you know, art shows for me because I'm interested in art. So. Yeah. Yeah, I just I when I when we moved to Froome, I was ready to just put my blinkers on. Yeah, and 
just get on with my work, really. So let's talk about your work. What? How would you describe your work? Because obviously, clearly, you're an author, which we'll get onto uh, shortly. But you, you principally, you are an artist, aren't you? I am an artist, although um, I'm never quite comfortable with the word for some reason. Okay. So you know, I often sit around thinking, uh, like when I was cutting the hedge today, I might have gone into a phase of thinking. Now, if I was somebody asked me what I was, uh, what I am, you know. What am I going to say? So often I think of alternative titles, like um, in, a, in a funny way, I'm a kind of biographer. Sometimes I'm an autobiographer because my work tends to be about what's going on inside me. And sometimes because I'm fascinated in what's going on inside other people, when I write, very often it's about other artists preferably dead artists who can't answer back. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fact check. Yeah. And so I do uh, like a psychobiography type thing. You know, I, I look at the evidence of their work, what's, what's going on in the work, and I look at their letters and any, any data I can glean yeah. to kind of get some clues as to what motivated them. I'm interested in what motivates people. Same here, very much so. Yeah. I'm I'm so interested in what makes people do the things they do and what yeah. experiences in their lives have led them to have these particular personality traits or have these self-destructive um, patterns of behavior or, you know, interested in the things they're interested in or why they must be a contrarian or, you know, or, or, or why they never disagree with anyone. And I just find people to be so fascinating. And I, I, that's, that's really cool. So do you kind of do that? Do you kind of like, um, are you sort of like a forensic psychologist in a way when you go through your research for a particular artist? Are you looking for that sort of Sherlock Holmes mm. kind of, you know, you'll um, perceive you know, yeah. details of their life through the way that their, you know, a picture of their office or something is well, laid out. Inevitably, it's sort of informed by my own experience. So, you know, you when you're trying to understand somebody, the only template you've got to lay on them to see how they are similar or different is your own nature. Right. So... The experiences that I've had through making my work over the last, you know, 40 years or so, uh, and it's evolved the way that I've approached my work and, and my understanding of what I did evolves as well. You know, you think you're doing one thing at the time and then later on you, you kind of get this intuition that uh, it was actually about something else. So those kind of experiences in the studio and out of the studio when you're meditating, uh, for want of a better word, about what it is you you do and you've done, that informs how I think about other people's work. So I've got a kind of, um, uh, I've got a, a kind of set of suspicions about, right. you know, what gets people out of bed in the morning. Right. And then I go looking around to see if that, uh, let's call it a hypothesis, yeah. can be 
proved or disproved. You know, I'm I'm not never out to. Um, you know, I'm, I I, I want to find out what's really going on. But yeah. you end up having that bouncing around between theories that you have about them and, you know, when it gets disproved, then you throw it out and find another one, you know. So who have you, who have you done, um, I guess, as autobiographical work for then? Who, who's so you? I've done, most recently, I've done Francis Bacon. Tell me about Francis Bacon. Uh, so Francis Bacon is an artist, uh, a painter, very well-known painter. He's very he's, he's 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 as well known, I guess, for his kind of um, hedonistic lifestyle um, as he is for his um, people call them shocking images of people who are he, he paints portraits mainly, and the people are dissected in a certain way right so but it's uh, he never understood why people were shocked by the images because basically it's um you know picasso in his cubist period where everything's turned into straight lines verticals and and horizontals bacon's only really done that where the in picasso the body looks kind of dematerialized because it's 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 turned into these kind of geometric forms um, Bacon only does that with curved lines, so that it looks biological, looks biomorphic, but there's something about seeing a body dissected in straight lines, which the Picasso analytical cubism does, which doesn't make you feel, ugh, there was blood involved in this. Right. Whereas when you see a Bacon, it looks like somebody's been at them with a machete. Wow. And... Uh, He's an interesting character. I'm definitely going to be looking at him up later. <laughs> so you've done Bacon, and who else have you done? Uh, I've done uh, a paint, uh, an American painter called Philip Guston. And Guston was one of the abstract expressionists. So he was a big pal of Pollock and Rothko and de Kooning and people like that. And um, he's another... What I was interested in with Bacon is there's a mystery as to you know why the hell he's he's working in the way he does. Right. Uh, Guston's a mystery too because he developed a very um, personal language of symbols. Okay. A very highly developed one just at the end of his life in the last ten years. After he help me out with that because I am I'm I'm trying to visualise what that that looks like so for instance you might have a mouth a disembodied mouth spewing out legs hundreds and hundreds of legs but legs long legs short legs all kind of like a, like a waterfall out of this mouth mm. and the mouth's locomotion is actually this torrent of legs. They're actually walking. So they, it's as if this disembodied mouth is like a, a cartoon character that's walking through, you know, some sort of Mutt and Jeff cartoon or something. Right. Like. So it's fairly psychedelic. Or, or does this predate what, what would be considered to be psychedelic? Uh, it's 1970s. So psychedelic. So Bang in the psychedelic. You wouldn't call it psychedelic. In terms of uh, in its appearance, way. they look they look very blunt. Right. Then the colours are 
uh, reds and blacks and you know they're they're not psychedelic in those lovely kind of Jimi hendrix right Some san francisco yeah. poster you know kind of things they're pretty brutal looking things so why do you why are you drawn towards um the darker art i guess <laughs> yeah i was just thinking not the dark I, arts <laughs> but the uh, you know the darker arts i was just thinking oh my god <laughs> this is gonna look that, as if i'm interested in the darker arts yeah um <laughs> Who's your favourite artist? Ed Gein. <laughs> yeah. I th to be honest, I think it's just, it probably is coincidental that they seem quite dark. It's, it's, the, it's the fact that they've developed a, a, um, an iconography, so a, a symbolic uh, language, a lexicon of symbols that is very highly developed, like a hieroglyphic. Right. Okay, like the hieroglyphic or language. For the millennial style. Exactly, exactly. And you get a sense when you read anything about them that nobody knows what the hell they're on about. Okay, people right. have been studying Bacon for a long time, but really nobody's got to grips with his kind of hieroglyphics, as it were. Even more so with Guston, because they're much more in-your-face developed visual signs like hieroglyphs. You just—it's just frustrating when you, right. you know, read a book about him. You think this guy hasn't got any idea what is going on. Let's right. have a let's go let's have a go at cracking the code. That's what it is. I'm into cracking and, codes. And is there a code? There is a code. And this, and he said this himself, is he? That there's something to find in this art. There's a message here. No. Or are you just speculating? No, 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 point? no, no. The great thing, Andy, is that these guys are like mediums. Okay. Right. So they do not know what is coming out of their mouths, out of, into their work. So when you read Guston's late letters, you can sense that although he doesn't know, he's got this feeling that something's emerging. And he gets exceedingly excited about four o'clock in the morning when he's finishing a painting. He starts to shake because it's showing him stuff about his unconscious mind that he hasn't got access to when he's awake. Oh my God. That's, <laughs> that's exciting. I like this. That is good. It's, it's fascinating. So where do you get your start? How do you, how do, where do you begin and how do you end up? You know, um, but being a biographer for these batshit crazy. How artists. do you get? How do you get your start? Yeah. It, well, my start. Where's it? Where's the beginning? When you're like, okay, I think I'm going to be an artist. I think this uh, is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was different. Weird, weird for me because I, I wasn't an artist until I was in my thirties. Oh. So, up until I was thirty-two, I was an art historian. Okay, so <laughs> writing books about a dead artist was what I did for a living, basically. Um, so right after I graduated in art history, I went to work in London in a museum called the V&A, the Victor and Albert Museum. And um, so for 15 or more years, I was a straight-up museum curator come art historian. And... Um, during that period, 
I suppose the process was because you, I mean, in those days, certainly in a national museum like that, you are more or less le left to your own devices. So I could choose the things that I studied. I could choose the exhibitions that I put on. I could choose the stuff that I was asked uh, to write about, you know. So, um, so you could play to your strengths. So you play to your strengths, but you also play to your un in inner unknown obsessions. Right. All right. So I did that for all these years, all throughout my 20s. Um, and I think what must have happened was what was building up inside was uh, that I was unconsciously asking questions about the world vicariously ans and answering them vicariously through writing about history. So you'd ask a question about your life, wrapped up in a question about the world and history, and eventually it dawned on me what I was doing. So I wasn't really only writing art history. I won't de deny that there is an art historical element to them, but if you were, a, if you were party to some of my internal obsessions, you'd find that uh, there was a subtext underneath and even underneath that layers, layers down below what was actually going on in the, in the writing or in the exhibition or whatever. There was something that I, Chris Bucklow, really needed to know about the world and that I was asking and answering through the act of doing the art historical exercise. And when I woke up to that, <laughs> I thought, mm. what was the moment when you were like, oh, I know what's going on here? I can't. Was there some sort of epiphany, penny drop? Well, it was just a, it was just a, a depressing misunderstanding of it at one point where I thought, actually, I've just written a piece about a modern artist and then um, I'm now I'm noticing that I said the same things about somebody who died in 1850. I was interested in their human nature, whether they were contemporary or 18th century or 19th century or whatever. And I, for a moment, I thought, oh, cracky, I'm all washed up. I, you know, I've kind of, I'm dredging the barrel right. of new things to say. And then it struck me, no, 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 these things are your obsessions. And this tells you a lot about who you are, Chris. And wouldn't it be more honest <laughs> to, make, to do something artistic with this and answer them, ask the questions and answer the questions um, overtly and directly? And so it was a moot point, you know, am I going to be a writer, a, a, you know, a novelist or something, or I don't know, you could, you know, a sculptor or whatever, you know. And, um, you know, the, as it turned out, I, I did become an artist, visual artist, and I've ended up being a painter, really. Um, so that's how it happened. And that's the, you asked about the, the, the in, how do you get, and this into a being a kind of biographer, a psychobiography. Is that what you asked? Well, me? it was sort of, yeah, it was sort of like, uh, it's sort of psychoanalytical to a degree, isn't it? You know, when there's like a serial killer on the loose 
and they sort of create a profile based off of you know the uh, the actions of this person or the way that they kill people or their yeah the the tar- the places they're doing it in or the fashion they do things yeah they begin to create some sort of uh, idea of who they're hunting for even though they have no idea who the individual is yeah they can use these things which are um, signposts for other um, personality traits or yeah. or psychiatric yeah elements and they figure out okay we're looking for a white male in his 30s yeah probably lives with his mother um could be from a a, a well um, a, a high place in society, blah blah blah, and they tend to. And then there's a lot of the time when they get these guys historically, and they're kind of in the ballpark. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you think that is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you kind of yeah. doing that that with art, um, what they have left behind for yeah, you? Yeah, and I, I guess it. You know, we as humans are very interested in. Um, you know, getting inside the heads of other human beings because, you know, we're kind of locked in here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we're a computer and a meat puppet. Yeah, yeah. Bacon said something interesting about this. He, he said, you know, sex was never uh, satisfying enough for him because he couldn't get fully inside the nature of his partner and that, you know, the sex act was just an effort to be to commune with that right. person you know so he wants to end, intertwine on a much deeper level <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 that's fascinating yeah it's not a yeah. it's not a uh it's not a physical act for him then it's something much more spiritual spiritual yeah 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 and where do you think that need comes from think he's going to find what's missing in himself within his partner i don't know which are we just curious about maybe he'll get why they like him maybe he's looking for a mirror within them yeah or or maybe it's just lonely being locked in your psyche you know perhaps you want to see if it's if it's so terrible being you (laughs) yeah you know are they (laughs) suffering too is it the human condition chris (laughs) Do you know what, Andy? I used to see him on a regular basis right. in South Kensington in the 1980s. So I, I, I was working at the V&A and I would get out, out of South Kent Tube and very often a number 49 bus would pull up and we, we coming out of the tube on the pavement were like a massive wall of people. And as the bus came to a halt, he would jump off the, you know, the kind of running plate at the back into the crowd. It was the only way to get off the bus and through, you know, through it, through the arcade. And, um, sometimes he would bump into me. I mean, literally shoulder charge me to get off. I had, I recognized him, but I had no interest in, in him whatsoever. I didn't like his art. I just thought, Oh, there's that Francis Bacon guy. So you didn't uh, even have a conversation with him? No, I could have run after him and said, oh, Mr. Bacon, tell me about, you know, whatever. I had yeah. no interest in it. But now, you, yeah. now you're fascinated by what him. A, what a missed opportunity, Andy. Do you feel maybe your fascination for his art has, has, has been strengthened by the fact that you have actually had interactions with him? Uh, I don't, no, I don't think so, really. No. no, it came out of the work, but it, 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 it seen the paintings, uh, but it did seem ironic that there had been all these opportunities sometimes three times a week for 10 years 
What did you learn about him from your short observations of him? Mm. Does that inform your writing or have you got to absolutely disregard that? Not really. Because you see, because he was interviewed so much, there was a, a, um, a critic called uh, David Sylvester who was very uh, studious and very interested in bacon. And he did a, a whole series, maybe six, eight, nine, I don't know, um, of lengthy interviews with him on the radio, on the telly, just privately uh, recorded. And they've been uh, transcribed and put out in a book, interviews with Francis Bacon. And, you you know, uh, Melvin Bragg did a fantastic, uh, what, the South Bank show with Bacon. So, you know, he's very present. And you... So he's sort of mainstream. I've got to admit, I'm, I know the name, but I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. pretty ignorant no, to his work. He's, he's, he's big, whopping. He's right. big, big. Um, Was he an arrogant man, a, a pretentious man, a humble no, man? No, not at all. Uh, a, a difficult man. Right. Difficult. A lot of people like him are, don't, uh, you know, they can be cutting. <laughs> He's got no tack. He's tactless. He, yeah, he tells the truth. Uh, let me think. Uh, I mean, what, what you, the feeling you get with him is that he's a very controlling character. So okay. when he works and he makes his images, he has, uh, he, he wants to control how you perceive that. So if David Sylvester asked him any personal questions, like, like the, the, the pieces of writing that I've done uh, are for the Francis Bacon estate. Okay, so uh, he's dead. Right. <laughs> can't answer back. <laughs> and he can't try and control me, which is right. great. Um, uh, but when he was alive, he was, there were no-go areas. Right. So, and he was, he was extremely famous during his own lifetime. So there were a lot of people wanting to talk to him and write to him. And because he was so powerful, um, you know, he's a big name. Yeah. That comes, that gives you power. Yeah, I'm interested you, you where that power comes from because he's just doing paintings, isn't he? I yeah. say just, but... Yeah, fame. Yeah, it's fame. What's, what's the, what kind of sort of power is that? Influence, I guess, isn't it? If he says he's this guy's a great artist, yeah, I love his work. Yeah, you can make or break someone, can't you? You say I don't like this artist; I think they're full of shit. Yeah, well, I mean, the, it was the general consensus that he was extremely interesting and somehow important, even though nobody right. could put their finger on why. Is this he was important. because he's main, he maintained some sort of? Uh, sort of uh, aloofness no it's literally the quality of the paintings right they are extraordinary things um can you yeah, see the obsession great. and the ego in the in like the brush strokes and how deep does that go with what you gather from that Ooh. yeah i mean so i mean people are complicated all right bacon was extremely complicated right. you know probably no more complicated than any of us but 
uh, you know, because to be famous, it gets forensically analysed. So you know, we're we're more in in touch with it. But he's although I say he's a controlling character, his his poison, the thing that Francis Bacon really gets off on, is giving up control. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so he will uh, begin a painting and tear it up, basically. Begin it again, get so frustrated with it that he'll just slash it with, you know, a big broad brush uh, or throw paint at it right. in frustration because he can't make the image. The image that's kind of forming in his brain that's beginning to make him have the appetite to see it, to create it on canvas, isn't clear enough for him to, and, and he's technically inept perhaps, you know, he can't do what somehow this desire to have an image is telling him to do. He's not up to it technically or something. So he'll, 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 he'll chuck a load of paint. And so that's giving up control of the way the image starts to chance. Or, uh, he was a masochist. So, he would go, you know, what, 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 he would go out to dinner at some Western restaurant and then he'd end up going down to Earl's Court and get beaten up. Um, that's, the, you know, right. he, he basically... On purpose. On purpose, yeah. Okay. So, he's, a, he's addicted. I mean, you, you know, it's kind of obvious. Somebody as controlling as that in, in public would have a kind of wounded individual that was interested in the opposite. Right. Living well, inside them, you know. I saw a documentary about like dominatrixes mm. and stuff. I think it was a um, Nick, is it Broomfield or Bloomfield? The documentary maker mm. did Kurt and Courtney, Biggie and Tupac. Nick Broomfield, Bloomfield. I'm not sure which one it is. Uh, one of those. Okay. Two. And he did one on a sort of uh, like a, a dominatrix layer place in sort of New York. Mm. It's like a place people went and they had all different kinds of kinky things. And and they said the, the main client clientele for them were stock market investors, bankers, CEOs, yeah. people who were in charge of an awful lot of people in their everyday lives. Yeah people that had all this responsibility on their shoulders during their everyday lives yeah. would then, it within their sex lives, relinquish all control to someone else as a form of, uh, I guess it was almost like a purging of yeah. of this stuff. So is the, are we on the same page there with, with Bacon? Do you think that was sort of where, yeah, where yeah. he was sitting? <clears throat> well, he, he was uh, an obsessive gambler as well. He would go to Monte Carlo he had a studio. Uh, in fact, he moved to Monte Carlo at one point <laughs> so he could be near the studio. And he would, uh, he would lose you know, all his money. You know, I mean, he, lit, he, he lived seriously kind of troughs and peaks kind of existence. Right. Uh, yeah. And again, that's another thing with chance, isn't it? It's yeah. Relinquishing. Yeah, yeah. Control. So this yeah. is fascinating. I love this sort of stuff. <laughs> so, so who else have you written about? Is he is he the one you love to write about? Is he uh, well, he's just the one I've been doing uh, most recently. I, I wrote a piece uh, last year for them 
And uh, then I wrote a piece in the in lockdown. This is what kept me sane uh, in lockdown, writing, <laughs> writing about <laughs> geezers like this. <laughs> and then uh, that's that's just come out, and they've asked me to do a, another one. I think this is the last one. I've kind of I've reached the end with him, really. I'll be looking for another victim shortly, Andy. Right. Okay. <laughs> sleep token. <laughs> <laughs> the lyrics. Yeah. What is it about sleep token that you like? Light and so shade. So much. Light and shade. Light and shade. Like yeah, the yeah. pixies in Nirvana. Yeah, yeah. Very sweet um, falsetto uh, voice and really heavy grunge guitar. Yeah. And there's something about those opposites. I mean, you know, I mean, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. You know? It's the juxtapositions, yeah. isn't it? The Mars Volta, my previous obsession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all about the light and shade. So their drummer, Thomas Bridgen, I think his name is, for the Mars Volta. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely insane. Mm. Um, have you heard of Ghost? Do you like Ghost? Uh, yes, I the, have. Uh, just the recently. metal band with again with yeah, the very yeah. Yeah. delicate vocals. Yeah, I think I think Spotify kind of said if you like this, then you're gonna like Ghost. Oh, so I have you're heard gonna of love you. Ghost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're gonna love Ghost. Listen yeah. to uh, the album Meliora. Okay, and then there's uh, the other one that I really love called Prequel, yeah. and it's a it's a quasi loose. Um, concept album on the uh, the Black Death. Okay, it's a track. And it's a track that opens it up. Well, it's the second track. It's called Rats. Yeah, which obviously is very much about the Black Death, but yeah. it's also about his former bandmates who have taken him to court and uh, over like lost royalties or something oh, like that. But I he's like this, <laughs> you know, this this guy. He dresses as the Pope, mm. uh, Papa Emeritus, or, or I can't remember how you, how you pronounce it. But every album, he's a different right. generation of this Pope. Oh, well, this and is so he's stunning. Kind of, he's kind of given it up now with this new one. He's a different character now. But the first few albums, yeah, yeah. he played ancestral yeah, yeah. Uh, front men. It was a very strange concept. I think you'd absolutely uh, love it. I, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. That Got sounds you. exactly my kind of thing. <laughs> Whether the music's any good or not, the concepts that you've just described are I've fascinating. I've got it all. I'll hook you up. Thank you. I'll hook you up. It'd be fine. So talking of sleep token and sleep, it's yeah, probably yeah. quite a good segue into um, those two books that you've got there. Mm. You mm. have been... How do you record your dreams? You've been recording your dreams for 30 years or something. 35 years, yeah. Um, well, I, you know, it, what's weird is I never, dis, never made a conscious decision to record my dreams, but here I am 35 years later having recorded them all. <laughs> and I've never made it into a fetish or, you know, I've never made a big deal about it. Um, the, I was 35 years ago, I was the kind of guy who wasn't interested in dreams. Right. I was too pragmatic, too rational too intellectual, thought, you know, dreams were the, you know, it's kind of load of foam bullshit. But uh, I had a dream in uh, 86 that had like a, a beautiful science fiction short story completeness about it. And it was, it was one of those things where you just couldn't go, but not just write it down on a, on a bit of paper. 
And that was the beginning of it. And so I just do always write them down now. And how obsessive are you about writing them down? Do you wake up in the morning and you go, I've got to get this down straight away? Yeah. You've got a book and a pen near you? Or yeah. do you not let it kind of control you too much to that degree and you just think, yeah, I'll get it down later? And No. Because they fade, don't they, once you've woken up? Sometimes yeah. you, they're fresh and then they're gone. Yeah. I, it's weird because I wouldn't describe it as uh, in any way... Um, you know, a big thing for me. Right. But weirdly enough, I have Here done you have it. a book full of them. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's so weird because, yeah, I don't make a big song and dance out about it right. in my own head. Yeah. But one way or another, something drove me to do it without hardly even noticing. Yeah. And, you know, now I've got now a thousand think. dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what do you think dreams mean? What are they to you? What is a dream? Oh... <sighs> Andy, now you're talking. <laughs> well, they're different things to different people. I mean, that's that's the main thing I've learned, that we don't all dream in the same way. Right. And we don't all dream uh, for the same reasons, I don't think, anyway. Because, I, I mean, I people tell me dreams and, you know, I get a sense of where they're coming from. And sometimes it's radically different than the, where I seem to be coming from in the way that I dream. So, you know, you can't say anything really, you can't have a kind of blanket um, idea about it. Like, that's one of Freud's, um, the problems with Freud for me, although I find him very interesting, he did have a kind of uh, generalised view that... Um, I suppose it started, this is the way I dream. That's interesting. This must be the way everybody dreams. Right. And only some people dream like Freud. I think right. Other people don't. And I, I think we should always bear that in mind. When you ask what do dreams mean, things it, it means something for me. It might right. not mean that to the listeners, you know. What is a typical Freudian dream? Oh, would you, I don't have them. That's a big question, sorry. <laughs> I, I don't have them, Andy. I do not dream like a Freudian. That's but, thing. I mean, I, sorry, I meant um, Sigmund Freud's dreams, the dreams yeah. that he is, yeah. he's written about that you've obviously read about. Yeah, yeah. What, what, how do his dreams differ from yours? Because it seems like you're experiencing a very different yeah. uh, dream to yeah, yeah. he is, to him. Well, um I mean, obviously, the thing that if, if anybody knows anything about, you know, the term Freudian, Freudian meanings or whatever, um, you know, that the sexual element is there. And as a primary element deep down underneath a lot of the imagery, I've not found that for me. I seem to be more driven by some need to integrate parts of my um, mind, part, parts of the mind that are separate from each other, you know, your unconscious and your conscious areas yeah. seem to have a kind of membrane between them that's evolved in the human animal. So we're not very party to the unconscious part of the mind. In fact, you know, I would say Western civilization is more or less in denial right. that it's got an unconscious, you know, um, even though technically and intellectually it's known, 
we go on behaving as if it doesn't really exist. Right. It's not. It's epi, epiphenomenal. It's not really real, you know. So the theory with dreams that I've heard is that they're an evolutionary tool for simulating situations that are would put you in mortal danger so that if when they occur in real life, you know that it's bad. So for instance, you know, when you're just drifting off to sleep mm. and you get that oh, jolting, mm. that sudden jolt up, mm. um, that apparently is to simulate that you shouldn't run off the cliff yeah, yeah. because yeah, yeah. it will feel like that and that's bad. <clears throat> and, and so we've, and apparently, you know, pe the, the people that have survived and then reproduced have been the ones that have had the dreams that have mm. informed them correctly about, mm. you know, tigers are bad. Don't mm. go and try and mm. pull the tail mm. of the tiger. Mm. Uh, well, that might be true for the dream researcher who uh, wrote that theory down. Right. Uh, but as I said, it's very specific to people and you shouldn't use that as a blanket kind of hypothesis for everybody else. Well, you can use it as a hypothesis. Right. But I hope you would find fairly quickly that that's, if it's true for you, it may only be true for you and people like you. And right. not everybody's alike. Yes. Um, so I'm, I can buy that. I think, you know, that might... Yeah, it actually sounds like the kind of dream that a scientist... The dream research people that uh, tend to be um, most... Uh, most published these days are scientific types. So they put people in, um, <clears throat> you know, MRI scanners, which give a real-time topographical view of which bits of the brain are lit up during <clears throat> any activity, including sleep and dreaming. And they can tell you, you know, which bit of the brain are activated during a dream or whatever. Um, and they tend to come up with theories like that one. Right. Interesting. And it to me, it's a pretty dumb theory. Right. <laughs> so I get two two types of dreams, really. Well, three, yeah. right? You got you, you get your your horny dream. Yeah. You get your I get the dream where I realize that ghosts actually exist. Excellent. And I don't actually freak out about it. Like I'm sort of presented with some sort of poltergeist activity. Right. Um, and I think, God, I knew it. Even though I don't, I don't really, I'm not really big in, in, in or invested in yeah. anything ghostly. When I was a kid, it was a big thing for me. I really did think of like believed in them, but yeah. it was like kid stuff. Yeah. So maybe that stayed with me from that developmental age. Mm. Um, so that, and then the other one is just uh, ones that are based off of anxieties. Yeah. So there's a lot of showing up to gigs without symbols. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Missing, you know, the band leaving. For a show without yeah. me and me being yeah. an absolute, being in the doghouse. Yeah. Uh, and that seems to be the main three yeah. um, sort so, of so themes I, of my so dream that, I think that's a common one. I get I get those type of things occasionally. Um, horny ones, obviously, occasionally. The ones I'd be interested in talking about, you know, for your dreams are the ghost dreams. Right. So yeah, because the horny ones are sort—they're of, just primal, aren't they? They're carnal and well, they may uh, be of the bacon type. You right. want you want to really enter the being, the nature of your partner in the dream, you know. And you... To become one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Maybe it was the Spice Girls growing up listening to them. But no. uh, so so you know to to 
say w- what my feeling about my dreams is, which you can use as a hypothesis uh, to, to measure up to some of yours if you want. Right. And you might find you have, you know, a similar feeling or whatever. So the ghost in the ghost dream, you see, my, my experience over all these years has been that pretty much everybody in the dream is me. Oh, wow. Including the ghost. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that is interesting. And, you know, when, I'm not going to say this is how it works for everybody, but I definitely know that's the pattern. Over a thousand dreams. If I use that hypothesis to start to think about the dream, it unlocks itself really quickly. It's a way in. And then you suddenly start to get the, the, the meanings of the symbols. They're, they're mainly metaphors, I right. think, the things that happen in dreams. And you get to understand what metaphor language is. It's because um, the reason, you know, this is, this is where, uh, you know, you can talk about the, f- the, the Freud thing again, just briefly. Freud kind of believed that the way that uh, the mind works in sleep is that um, unacceptable content is twisted out of easy to recognize shape. So something you find unacceptable in your behavior or wishes or whatever is then morphed and twisted into something that you don't recognize to keep it safe, I suppose, in your in your psyche, so you're not uh, grossed out by it, or I don't know what, whatever. But um, so you're sort of sugarcoating it for yourself. You, you're symbolising it in a way that is digestible, yeah, or, or even undigestible because it's now in a safe shape that you don't really understand. I see. Right. Whereas um, I found through my experience that the dream sender whatever this mysterious thing is that uh, that makes the dream up and it is truly a mystery that i've never got to the bottom of but whatever this thing is it's trying to say it as plainly as it possibly can so it's not twisted in any way it's saying it right between the eyes this is it this is what i'm saying to you and the only reason that your conscious mind can't understand it is because the conscious mind works on verbal language and the language that the dream sender uses is visual language and visual language can only mean through metaphors okay so you know if you say uh, a man is an oak tree you're you're an oak tree, Andy. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'd say that's a compliment. Thanks. Um, uh, you know, the oak tree appears in the dream, and if you understand it's a metaphor, you think, you know, what what is this oak? Well, it might have an Andy head on it, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> oh, but you know what I mean. So, it's a picture language, and it's a metaphor language. And the verbal conscious part of the brain, unless it twigs that, doesn't get it at all. It's in a different language. It's incredible. I'd still, 
I'm still fascinated by the fact that you've said every every sort of character in your dream mm. is you. Sort of reminded me of that Aphex Twin music video where they've all got his face. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You've seen that one. Yeah, yeah. Is it like that for you? Yeah, your... yeah, yeah. So even the women <laughs> in my dreams. <laughs> even the aliens. Do you make a good woman? Do you look good? <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, yeah. She's she's very insistent. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the animals, the the furniture, the carpet. Uh, the, the whole world is clothed in the psyche. Right. You know, that's what that's how the so, dream so center makes. So it's like the hollow deck on uh, in Star Trek. Exactly. But it's, but it's all exactly. But the AI is all you. Yeah. Yeah. So if you know how to if you've twigged to the metaphor language of this, then you can start to form suspicions. Ah. This is where you get your detective. Who is this character coming to me in my dreams? What are they saying to me? Should I be listening to it? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Is it usually once you feel that you've got to, because it's obviously going to be very subjective, isn't it? Yeah. So once you've got to the bottom of what you believe the message is, yeah. um, do do you just, how am I going to frame this? Do you feel like that's your brain telling you something or do you feel like the act of coming to that conclusion is your brain telling you something? <clears throat> yeah, good question. Um, well, I think the fact that the patterns are consistent over a long, long, long period, I think there's actually something in the unconscious that's structuring it and making these messages to self, which is kind of what I take my dreams as. And again, I'm I'm not going to say this is how it always works for everybody, but it it definitely works for me. And it's led to, um, you know, lots of fantastic moments in the morning. When you have a dream, you don't know what the hell it is. It's bizarre. You just think, how the hell can I get into that? And then gradually you find a key to something you think might be a keyhole. Right. It might not be a keyhole, but you put this thing in. In fact, you may not even have the key. You might have something you're assuming the key, but you stick it in anyway. (laughs) And sometimes it twists and then it opens into another door and gradually opens up and the feeling is immense. Right. Because you really, really can see there's a coherence to it. There's, it relates to dreams that you've had in the past. It relates to your life in general, stuff that, um, you know, you're either aware of or dimly aware of or hopes that, you know, you, whatever you have. And that's a mo- that is a truly exciting moment. <laughs> that's probably why I keep right. writing them down. Okay. So uh, do, you, do you class nightmares in these dreams or are they, are they a separate section for you? Or do you not really do nightmares? I don't really do nightmares. Um, do I do nightmares? Do I, yeah, I have had the odd nightmare. Um, or just something where you wake up and you've 
kind of unsettled for a while while, while that part of your brain sort of wakes up and and sort of you know yeah, creates a rationale for what you've seen and then you can go back to sleep i think they're rare nightmares are rare for me but they they doesn't doesn't mean that they're not not subsumed within this general right way of thinking about them do you believe that's maybe because you feel more in touch with this subconscious part of you so it has less it's almost like it's hemorrhaging negativity isn't it like if mm. it, by your definition of mm. dreams and their purpose within our life mm. Mm. a nightmare would be i guess a corrupt file or a hemorrhaging mm. of of something um like you said that would have normally been wrapped up and hidden from you within a metaphor mm. uh, yeah i think not nightmares when they occur for me are more they are slightly off beat actually because the general beat of the direction of the the dreaming over this long period is more constructive i'm not saying that a nightmare isn't i couldn't make it constructive by understanding what's going on in it but on the whole uh, dreams for me are more constructive in a more benign or less scary way you know right and and looking back over your book of a thousand dreams mm. do you notice more nightmares towards the beginning and then they they have less less and less uh what's the word recurrence throughout the book or is it all pretty even yeah there's not many nightmares andy there there's there you could class things that i dreamt early on as scary because i didn't understand them right okay so that's looking another level back of subjectivity them, then isn't it i can see what where they were coming from and it wasn't it was only scary uh actually this is a good point actually <clears throat> so when when you how you take a dream um can depend on how kind of uh I don't know, I shy away from using the word, but I'll use it anyway. If you're feeling somehow integrated, now what do I mean by that? I mean that your your conscious brain is, your conscious mind is somehow at ease and possibly permeated by stuff from your unconscious. So... That's just not sounding very well, but anyway. So, so, but you, the point of saying it is that you can take dreams purely from a kind of ego point of view. Right. In which case, some of the dreams are really scary because the, uh, the ego doesn't want to... It tries to protect itself. It's trying to protect itself. Exactly. So it will lie to you. Uh, it, it's not so much that it lies to you, it just finds, well, I can only do it by um, <clears throat> a theme that occurs in my dreams a lot, and it's of the dissolution of the ego self, probably. So where it kind of merges, <laughs> we're back to bacon here, <laughs> where it kind of merges with another part of the mind. Right. There's There's a lot of dreams about... Um, being on the water's edge. So, and this is this kind of um, um, line, the, the permeable membrane between 
the conscious part and the unconscious part. And if I'm feeling, uh, well, actually, I can't even use the word if I'm feeling, because that implies conscious control. And there isn't conscious control in this kind of thing. So let's put it in another phrase. You can say, if the ego part of me as is freaked out about dissolving and becoming porous to that other part of me, then it's scary. And the ego feels it's a scary moment. It doesn't want to be dissolved, doesn't want to be part of greater me, you know, because right. the, the, for me, the ego self, and e ego is a funny word because it's got tarred with a lot of brushes that are not really useful, but let's th just, let's not use the word ego. That's called the conscious bit of me, yeah. which sometimes gets called the ego. It's like, a, it's like a bubble in a vast ocean of unconsciousness that is, that is there all the time. I mean, it, it, right now, you know, part of my brain is dreaming. Right. Right now, part of my brain is involved in a lot of unconscious fantasy. But the bit of me that's talking to you is enclosed in a, a bubble. And the inner surface of that bubble is mirror plated. So I can't see out into the ocean. Right. It's mirror plated on one side, like a, um, like one of you know those double mirrors that you see in uh, the, the interrogation rooms. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So some mirror. of some of the unconscious can permeate through it. I don't know where this information is coming from, uh, because the conscious self, on the whole, doesn't want to see itself as a bubble in a wider ocean. It wants to be the whole, the whole <laughs> the, thing, the whole right. thing. Um, and, um, uh, if, if that, if that situation is somehow in compromised, well, if, I mean, I go through phases of viscerally, um, you see, I keep using the word I, Th phases occur within me, okay, where the system wants to the membrane to be totally porous. Nothing to do with me. <laughs> it's some inner system that's working within me uh, that is a, somehow attracted to being merged, right. those two areas. And then I go through other phases when the system in me is shit scared of that. And so that's the moment when those kind of dreams seem scary. Other, in the other moment, they seem extremely satisfying. Right. Know? That's crazy. Mm. So you've brought some books with you. And I can see there's some bookmarks in there. I am now um, incredibly uh, curious to, yeah. to hear some extracts from your book. Yeah. Um, so what I did is I had a, a, a retrospective exhibition of my artwork at Southampton City Art Gallery. And um, uh, it was, you know, a retrospective is like a, you know, a roundup of what you've done so far. And it came coincidentally at the, the kind of end 
of a great phase that had lasted like 30 years in my work. I mean, when you're in a phase, you don't actually know it, but when it comes to close, you can feel it's kind of mythically complete. It had a beginning, it had a middle, and it had an end. And at the moment when it was coming to an end, by coincidence, this big show was offered to me and where I could show hundreds of works throughout the museum there. And I thought, um, what can I publish? What can I, what information can I put out that will make it more easy to understand what kind of kick I've been on, you know? Um, because you don't really want to lay it out on a plate for people because that's kind of dull, right. <laughs> you know? But I thought, what could make, give people hints? So I collected all the dreams together because the dreams and the paintings are very similar. I never paint from a dream because that's dull because you, you're... It's doubling up. Yeah, you're repeating something that happened previously. You've already created it. Yeah, you're yeah. illustrating something that's gone, you yeah. know. So what I tend to do is daydream on canvas. So when I'm creating a painting, I will start with nothing and I'll just... It'll just... You know, a figure will come in. Ten minutes later, I'll paint it out because another figure wanted to come in that was different than that one. So I, it's like I've got a cast of characters inside mm. and the studio is a bit like a seance room. When somebody <laughs> knocks on the wall, paint me, I paint them. Mm. <laughs> you know, and somebody else <laughs> knocks on the wall, paint me, I want to fight or fuck with that one. Yeah. <laughs> I paint them, you know. Yeah. So... So it's kind of daydreamed into being. And what I noticed was that the daydream imagery and the nightdream imagery shared certain um, words. Right. Certain words in the lexicon were similar or, um, yeah, identical. And so the publishing the dreams was a way of letting people in to my process or <laughs> weird weirdness <laughs> so let's hear some <laughs> well <laughs> read me a couple well shall i read you the first dream yeah because so, i because I'm, I'm intrigued by all these uh bookmarks you've got in here so i'm well, figuring got, that you've been through and you've got some stuff that's well i've got you know greatest got, hits. I've, well they're not so much the greatest hits they're the ones that are clean enough to read <laughs> oh I was kind of hoping for some non-clean ones. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just read you the one that, because, um, you know, hearing other people's dreams can be very dull. So I'll make this, uh, right. it's, a, it's a short one, okay? It's the one that I said uh, was like a sci-fi Yes. Thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. A sci-fi short story. So, so it starts where I'm on the upper concourse level of a shopping centre. And I'm leaning on... Uh, the rail, and I'm looking down, watching all the people walk below on the ground floor of the, the, this big shopping centre. But uh, at that moment, from behind me, a woman approaches, and she speaks to me, and she talks about something called the superimposition of souls. Oh. And she asks me if I've been fused, and I don't know what she means. And so she points out, that the figures, the people that we can see below, have got more than one soul in their bodies. 
there seems to have been some kind of social pressure to do it, to, to become double sold. Perhaps because of famine or overcrowding. <laughs> I, think, I mean, I think these parts of the dream are like your rational mind trying to make sense of it somehow. Right. But, so they're like interpolated into the dream. I think the in the dream itself, that's probably not being asked. You know, they're just going, they're just doing it. You know, right. that's that's me trying to explain it. So probably early in the morning. So the the thing that joins the people uh, makes the double souls in the bodies <clears throat> is a machine. Um, so the next minute it cuts to the moment when we're, I'm going to be joined with several people. We go into the machine for two of the people, it works and they come out in the same body, a kind of an external amalgam of both, but with two lives inside. And then there are two girls who are joined and they're not as well joined. They share some parts, but just, but they both have their heads and they seemed, and they're joined to the first pair. So it's like this kind of big Siamese twin. I know that's not the t term that's used anymore, but you know, where Con people are co uh, co-joined co co twins. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm not joined at all very well, <laughs> probably just by an arm. And then I found find out, and this is where it gets weird into the science fiction. Then I find out that the woman who suggested this and introduced the technology is strange. She's eating people. She's an alien who is sustained by absorbing souls. And by this time, many hundreds could be joined, many hundreds of souls could be joined together in one body. And they're, uh, they're still alive, and they're presumably, they're, I mean, I don't go into the technical details, but presumably they're their own selves, but they're in one body. And I find out that the woman is from an alien race that came through this galaxy from another galaxy billions of years ago seeding single-celled life onto planets like a crop, like you would sow seeds in a field. And we're from this planting. You know, if, if, uh, they leave the cells for millions of years to undergo evolution and grow souls eventually. And then they return to harvest the crop. <laughs> and... They influence, they come to the, the, the planet, they influence the crop to fuse so that everybody gets superimposed into one body so that they can eat as easy, easier. <laughs> so what does this mean? Is this the capitalist world, Chris, coming down on you? Ah, <laughs> uh, boy. Well, weirdly enough, Andy... What was the rent due when you had that? Weird, weirdly enough, I was reading a book on uh, dreams by a, uh, an American psychotherapist called Edward Edinger, Californian, it, from the 1980s. And there's a dream almost the same as that, dreamt by one of his um, patients, whatever, in the 1950s. I mean, it was uncanny. Right. So, um, you know, and it, and it has kind of... Uh, also parallels things in the Bible, you know. It's kind of like uh, the Book of Revelation type uh, apocalypse kind of stuff going on. Right. Um, 
But you say, what does it mean? Well, I think over the years, having realized that everybody in the dream is me, the woman was part of my core self, the one that's kind of hidden from us because we're inside the conscious bubble, the mirror-plated bubble. Um, it's an entity. Let's call it. Uh, uh, it is a woman in the in the dream, but let's say let's call it an entity that took the form of a woman for the sake of the correct metaphor that the dream sender wanted to say, and the, the to make it a woman in terms of uh, you know traditional kind of symbolism in our culture, it's a more intuitive, more emotional version of the self. And it was basically saying, it's about time you stopped being a bloody intellectual zealot <laughs> and got in touch with your feelings or something like that. Big thanks to Chris Bucklow for coming on the show this week. If you want to uh, get a copy of Chris's book, Nantucket Sleigh Ride, we will leave the links in the show note descriptions. You can also check out his other works uh, in there as well. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. Follow me, Andy Rintmore, on Instagram. That's at Andy underscore S1S. This podcast was produced by Harry Williams. Please join us next week on the giant pod.